Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. The last four years have altered the global human rights landscape in some pretty significant ways. Certain rhetoric coming from the White House seemed to encourage and embolden authoritarians around the world. The Trump administration also by and large abandoned multilateral platforms for advancing a human rights agenda. This includes the UN Human Rights Council. At the same time, China began to more proactively engage in those very platforms. My guest today, Suzanne Nossel, makes the compelling argument that the time has never been more urgent for the United States to reassert itself at multilateral human rights platforms like the UN Human Rights Council. The U.S. was a member of the Council up until 2018, when the Trump administration abruptly abandoned its seat. Now, starting in 2021, the Human Rights Council will include China, but not the United States. And as Suzanne Nossel explains, that has some real-world implications for how the international community approaches human rights, particularly in issues related to the regulation of technology and free speech in the digital space. Suzanne Nossel is the CEO of PEN America, and author of the new book, Dare to Speak, Defending Free Speech for All. She served as a Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for International Organizations during the Obama administration, where she helped design and implement U.S. policy towards the U.N. Human Rights Council. We kick off discussing how human rights issues have evolved over the last four years before having a deeper conversation about how the Biden-Harris administration may more effectively use multilateral platforms to advance a global human rights agenda. Today's episode is produced in partnership with the Better World Campaign as part of a series examining the opportunities for strengthening multilateral engagement by the new Biden-Harris administration and the incoming 117th Congress. To learn more and access additional episodes in this series, please visit getusback.org. And now here is my conversation with Suzanne Nossel. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I'd be curious to learn from you your perspective on how you think the landscape of global human rights issues has changed over the last four years of the Trump administration. Well, sure. You know, I think it's changed 
quite considerably. You know, for one thing, obviously, the United States has pulled back on its leadership role in so many different areas, press freedom, you know, the treatment of women, LGBTQ rights, just to name a few. The United States is no longer the place where human rights defenders from around the world necessarily know they can turn for assistance and solidarity and a voice to speak out on their behalf. And so that absence has been glaring in in certain areas. The Trump administration has really inverted the traditional values the U.S. has stood for, press freedom in particular, with the president's attacks on journalists and media outlets calling reporters enemies of the American people. That has emboldened a whole coterie of authoritarians around the world who have just been waiting to be kind of unleashed in their own antagonism toward the press that tries to hold them accountable in their own countries. And so that kind of backtracking on U.S. leadership has been really serious. And then things like uh, giving at least tacit approval to the internment of millions of Uyghurs in Xinjiang, uh, for example, the silence on Hong Kong, you know, you could go on and on. So that's one piece of it. You know, in the same period, we've had a European Union that has been enmeshed in its own troubles, negotiating through Brexit. You know, the UK was always a strong voice within the union for a forward-leaning human rights policy. As a US official, you know, if I wanted to get the European Union on board for something, you know, I would call the, the, the British first to try to see if they would take a lead and start syndicating the issue. They're, you know, by no means the only ones and plenty of other people you can call uh, and who do lead, but I think they, there has been uh, a kind of lack of focus and, and, and forward-leaning momentum there. You know, and then in the same period, you've seen China really exploiting the U.S.'s absence and the void that has been created to begin to think through how they can reshape some of the international architecture to put less emphasis on human rights and uh, more stress on principles of sovereignty. Those principles have always been you know, sort of both baked into the UN system and in some degree of tension with one another. And I think the Chinese see an opening to kind of remake the institutional architecture uh, in, in a vision that is more suited to the worldview out of Beijing. And, you know, they've been able to progress that agenda without the kind of pushback that you might be able to expect. Is it fair to say that, you know, even before the Trump administration came to office, you had these certain trends in global human rights, whether it was a shrinking of space for civil society or democratic backsliding, and that those trends only seem to have accelerated over the last four years? I think so. I mean, definitely when it comes to the crackdown on civil society and the adoption in many dozens of countries of new NGO laws that are aimed to make life difficult for human rights defenders, civil society, advocacy organizations, mass movements. A lot of this grew out of the Arab Spring and a recognition that this bottom-up energy could become transformational and from the perspective of an authoritarian government, dangerous. And so that has been uh, a pronounced trend that has only accelerated. I think authoritarians have gotten more sophisticated in terms of the te- their use of technology. 
surveillance tools uh, and tracking mechanisms. Some of it is happening under cover of COVID. You know, the pandemic gives a rationale to force people to download apps that track their movements, track their contacts. Those can be incredibly powerful tools for authoritarian governments that want to know who's meeting with journalists, who uh, is getting together for political gatherings or organizing meetings. You know, you also see a kind of more sophisticated and developed rhetoric, uh, you know, on different fronts, you know, whether it is the spate of fake news laws that capitalize on that coinage uh, out of the Trump administration. You know, he has validated the idea of fake news. And so now governments around the world and Singapore and elsewhere have sort of taken advantage of that to clamp down essentially on, on news coverage that they dislike or that is critical of them. So there, there have been these countervailing trends that have been mounting for a while that I think you're right, have, have only been accelerated over the last few years. And you know, the fundamental run really is, is sort of the rise of China and the, the alternative system that they, that, 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 uh, China's Chinese government represents, and the notion I think uh, now taken much more seriously around the world that this, you know, this is a workable paradigm. This is not something that in in the short term is necessarily going to collapse uh, out of its own weight, which was a notion that I think American policymakers held for a long time that we now recognize, uh, you know, wasn't going to come to isn't going to come to fruition. And to what extent? Do you think or have you seen China uh, exert itself in multilateral forums um, in terms of China trying to undermine certain language in UN resolutions or take certain steps at the UN to challenge kind of the traditional notions of human rights that the UN has come, you know, has adopted over the years? You know, it's happening on multiple fronts. You know, in the digital freedom arena, they are advancing a concept of cyber sovereignty, basically, that every country should be entitled to full and complete control of the digital realm as they see fit, you know, which is... So long as they use Huawei technology. Sure. And and (laughs) then instantiating their own technical systems and standards around the world that give them all kinds of uh, backdoors and access even to the communications of, uh, you know, foreign nationals and, and Americans and Europeans. And so that is moving forward a pace and they're trying to undergird it with a kind of normative framework that would validate, uh, you know, this unfettered access to all communications that you know take place within China and many that take place globally as well because they utilize Chinese platforms or infrastructure. So that's one way, you know, they're also working to kind of progressively undercut the system of special rapporteurs that operate out of the UN Human Rights Council uh, to limit the funding and support and resources that these officials get. These are one of the very few kind of concrete, tangible mechanisms that the UN Human Rights Council has to actually deploy people to investigate issues, to issue hard-hitting reports, to raise the visibility of human rights concerns. And so China is now on the committee that regulates the function of those rapporteurs, and uh, that is a powerful position for them to hold and a, a place where they can uh, you know, work to advance their agenda. Mm-hmm. You definitely see it on resolutions, on Xinjiang, for example, you know, rallying. And this is an old tactic that uh, you know, we've seen time and again when there are human rights abuses and certain countries want to come together to call them out. You know, if the offending country is powerful enough, they will rally a 
uh, backlash and a kind of countermeasure that's, uh, you know, essentially a fake news version of the resolution mm-hmm. that an alternate narrative that validates the actions of the abusive country. And then they lean on their bilateral relationships to rally people behind that kind of resolution. And it's a real inversion of how the human rights machinery is supposed to work and one of China's methods. And it's interesting that you that you bring up to me uh, China's undermining of special procedures. These these are like the special independent experts and special rapporteurs that are dispatched by the UN Human Rights Council to focus on like a specific issue, like human rights in Belarus or the rights of people with disabilities. Either it's kind of thematic or or geographic issues. And one kind of striking and, and shocking thing from the Trump administration has been uh, there's been a number of, of reports and incredible reporting on the fact that the Trump administration simply refused to engage with the special rapporteurs at all. Like they wouldn't even respond to emails. Um, there was some sort of blanket uh, order, it seemed, uh, from the State Department not to even respond to emails or respond or work with these special procedures in any way. Uh, and apparently that was also the case in, in China. And so it seems as we look at the Biden administration, uh, there are obviously some opportunities to kind of right that wrong and uh, work more productively with the Office of the High Commissioner of Human Rights and also the UN Human Rights Council. And I know in the previous administration, you had a big hand in setting U.S. policy towards those entities. So I'm curious to learn from you, you know, what opportunities now exist for the incoming administration to more productively engage uh, those, those multilateral platforms. Yeah, sure. I think it's extremely important, even more important than it was for the U.S. to reenter the Human Rights Council when we did back in 2009, when the Bush administration had absented itself. Now the stakes are higher because of China's greater involvement and influence and and the vacuum that has been left by U.S. participation. Back then, you know, you had the likes of Sri Lanka and others sort of taking advantage of the U.S.'s absence. Now it's China. And so it's much more consequential. So I think it's extremely important that the U.S. come back uh, in force and effectively. We know how to do it. We have the playbook for this. It's not about a kind of America first diplomacy. It's not about the U.S. putting its foot down. It's about building cross-regional coalitions and developing close working relationships with delegations from around the world, both in Geneva, where the Human Rights Council is headquartered, as well as in capitals, where the decisions are made about which countries will get behind what issues. And, you know, when we did this back in 2009, nobody trusted the Human Rights Council, not least the U.S. government, because they had seen the council kind of embarrass itself time and again, and it, it it took a series of progressive initiatives to build up a sense that the council could operate productively and issue resolutions that were credible and that took on serious issues. And so we've kind of started small and then moved toward more ambitious and consequential initiatives resolving a longstanding standoff over uh, the so-called defamation of religion and enacting a whole series of resolutions that led to major investigative commissions dealing with the aftermath of the Arab Spring and ensuring some uh, document, important historical documentation and accountability there. 
So I think there's a similar playbook and, and really a, 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 a wide array of issues that the U.S. can lead on that really are in sore need of attention. And I would put digital freedom and the human rights consequences of social media and artificial intelligence at the top of that list. These are unregulated areas that have grave human rights implications. And if the United States and its allies don't begin to further define the norms, you know, China will readily and is already stepping into that breach. Yeah, the fundamental argument against the Human Rights Council and against U.S. participation in the Human Rights Council, which was articulated by the George W. Bush administration and again by the Trump administration when Nikki Haley, um, you know, took the U.S. out of the council was the fact that many members of the council are themselves countries with deeply problematic human rights records um, undermines the legitimacy of the council itself. And second, that the council has an undue focus on Israel. To what extent do those criticisms suggest that the U.S. should, in fact, seek to delegitimize the space as opposed to try to enter and work within, you know, an imperfect institution to try to advance those issues that you just articulated? Yeah, look, I think the criticisms are valid, uh, you know, to a large extent and that these the, the body uh, is flawed, although by its design, it is uh, a, a multilateral body that includes a large swath of members of all kinds. And sort of everybody is there. And when we've looked at the composition of the council, for example, in relation to Freedom House's breakdown of countries on a spectrum between free and unfree, it's it's broadly representative. And that really mm. is the point of a body like the Human Rights Council or the General Assembly, is that you have countries from all regions and with all systems, you have powerful countries. And so when the council speaks out, it's not just a group of the like-minded. It's not the same thing as a you know, US, EU, Canada, Australia statement, which is you know, one kind of moral authority. It has a very different moral authority that is taken much more seriously in some parts of the world. And so when you actually can bring these countries together, there's a lot of potency to that. And I think the US sometimes overlooks that. I also think that the the, the kind of reluctance to accept the UN and the Human Rights Council for what it is uh, and, and recognize that the membership and participation of countries of, you know, with all kinds of political systems is, is part and parcel of how these institutions were designed leads to a, a series of self-defeating consequences. You know, when the U.S. withdraws, China moves in. Uh, you know, it, it, Israel can be targeted, uh, you know, in an even more one-sided way. And when the U.S. is present, and we really demonstrated this in the years uh, at, of the Obama administration, there is tremendous potential. You know, we, if you look at the, how the numbers moved in terms of the degree of emphasis on, you know, just Israel and a standalone agenda item, uh, you know, when we first began, the council was doing resolutions and actions on you know almost no other country. And by the end, they were looking at many different countries, including many Arab countries, which is a longstanding complaint that they've never done that. And it was really U.S. leadership that made that possible. My hope is actually that with China moving in so assertively, that we can kindle a bipartisan awareness that the U.S. cannot be absent or down from the count, and that we need to marshal our allies, our, our incredibly effective diplomats, our creativity and ingenuity to 
breathe back a, a liberal human rights oriented agenda into these institutions. And that, mm-hmm. you know, this is, if we're thinking about what's going to determine whether the Chinese way of doing things ultimately gains dominion globally, the UN is going to be one of the proving grounds. Mm-hmm. And if the US is not in the fight, uh, you know, we're going to lose. And so I, it's very consequential. Well, you know, and, and, um, you know, forgive me for maybe uh, tooting your horn, and I hope this is not um, – I'm not, like, divulging stuff that at one point 11 years ago was off the record, and we could delete it if not. But you were – if I recall, the point person in trying to assemble a coalition to prevent some bad human rights abusers from winning election to the to the UN Human Rights Council, right? During the Obama administration, yes. that, that was that was one of your jobs, if I recall correctly. That's right. And look, it's not to say that that's not important because those victories uh, can be very consequential. We like it was Iran Libya. or something. Didn't, didn't you? Got it kept Iran off yeah, the council. Yeah, I remember. Got okay. Libya kicked off the council. Yeah. So it's not to say that those fights aren't worth having, but you know, what we've seen typically is you, you, you can't, there are more actors uh, and, and nations with poor records almost in any cycle trying to gain mm-hmm. election to the council than uh, the U.S. and its allies can fight back again. So it's not to say don't take on those battles because those battles, I think, have an important symbolic significance. And it, 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 you know, this council does have a standard where the human rights record of the uh, campaigning country is one of the factors to be taken into account in the vote. And that, that is exercised imperfectly. So I think Mm. the effort to try to bring actors with strong credibility on human rights issues and strong records uh, onto the council is a Mm. worthwhile one, but the way things are structured and the system of regional groups at the UN means it's never going to be realized perfectly. And that fact should not be grounds to, you know, for the U.S. to uh, turn its back. You mentioned earlier, and we discussed earlier, the special procedures, the UN human rights uh, investigators, independent experts, uh, and special rapporteurs. You know, is there anything that can be done to more empower their mission? I mean, I remember reading a Brookings report from many years ago that you know took a kind of a hard look at the impact that these special procedures had, that these rapporteurs and, and investigators had, and you know they did find that in fact they were able to push the needle in the right direction on human rights in many different uh, places around the world. Is there anything that can be done to, to better empower that, that aspect of the global human rights multilateral architecture? There's a lot that can be done. You know, it's something, you know, when I first got involved in the Human Rights Council, I was a bit skeptical because I thought, look, these are single experts. How much can they really do? But the reason they are influential is that they carry this imprimatur of the international system. And it's not just the West. It's not just rights respecting countries. It's the entire UN. And there's a certain political clout that goes with that. And absolutely, uh, they can be influential, whether it's getting an individual released from prison after a group of rapporteurs issue a statement or the, the UN special rapporteur on freedom of expression over the last few years, a guy named David Kay. A regular on this very podcast, David Kay. Yeah, so David, as you know, then, has had a lot of influence in how both civil society, governments, and the tech companies uh, consider their human rights obligations in relation to content moderation. He has a book on the topic, and you've seen uh, the likes of Google and Facebook all publicly recognize their human rights obligations, and I think David uh, gets a lot of credit for that. So, 
I think that system is extremely important. You brought up one obvious way that the U.S. can exert leadership, which is with respect to its own cooperation with special procedures. And this, you know, honestly was an issue during the Obama administration. One of the challenges was uh, access to Guantanamo at the time. And uh, we were never able to agree on terms by which UN special rapporteurs who sought access to Guantanamo could be given that access. I think if the U.S. is able to surmount that and demonstrate that it is being more transparent and and is in fact setting the standard for access to the special procedures, that would be a powerful message for the rest of the world and put some pressure on authoritarian governments that try to keep these rapporteurs at bay. Um, Finally, you know, beyond the UN architecture that we've already discussed. Is there anything else surveying the landscape uh, that the Biden administration can do? Any other multilateral platforms that the Biden administration can perhaps more productively engage to advance human rights issues? All of the regional organizations, the OAS has its own human rights mechanisms. ASEAN has, uh, Mm. you know, a rather nascent human rights mechanism. But, you know, even the fact that regional organizations have seen the necessity to engage with these issues, you know, represents a a, a certain attainment on behalf of a liberal rights-respecting agenda. And that's not something to be taken for granted. I mean, that's, that's, you know, something that I thought a lot about is, is, you know, there was this tremendous work done in the 20th century to instantiate these principles and treaties. If we were going to set about to do that uh, again now in the 21st century, I think it would be impossible to get the kind of broad agreement uh, that that was achieved then. And so there's enormous power to the fact that these institutions exist and they have a human rights mission and agenda. They have principles that countries have signed on to, even if they honor them in the breach. And so for the U.S. to reinforce all of those by activating them, populating them, engaging with them, elevating the individuals uh, and leaders involved, making the work more visible, I think is extremely important. Uh, Well, thank you so much, Suzanne. This was great. Thank you very much, Mark. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Suzanne Nossel. That was you know, very interesting for me. I'm sure you got a lot out of it as well. Uh, and again, please go to getusback.org to view other episodes in this series about how the United States can re-engage in multilateral platforms with the coming administration and the coming Congress. All right. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.